Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't yet joined our wonderful Flywheel Nation community, go to flywheelnation.com and join in the podcast conversations. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. Step one, have that conversation in your business. Is brand love bullshit? What strategy do we want to use? Are we going to be the useful, pleasant, easy people who focus on distribution, top of mind advertising, quality products, and keep everything practical, but applied in a practical, strong way? Or are we going to have a strategy that says we're going to develop a real emotional connection? Consumers are going to have a real emotional connection with our brand. It's not just they're going to think it's good. They're going to think it's good and that it's part of their identity and that it's really important to them. If you're going to do that, you've got to do more than just have a quality product. You've got to look at how you're going to create those emotional connections. And that is a complicated and fascinating and super fun business. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. I'm really excited today to have on the InnovaBuzz podcast as my guest, Dr. Aaron Ahuvia. He's a professor of marketing at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, and the world's leading academic expert on brand love. That's right, brand love. He has been ranked in the top 2% of all scientists and ranked 22 in the world for research impact in consumer behavior. He's been featured in major media, including Time Magazine, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Der Spiegel, The Nihon Keizai Shimbun, Japan's Wall Street Journal, National Public Radio's Marketplace and The Oprah Winfrey Show. Most recently, he is the author of the book, The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. At Flywheel Nation, our sponsor, we have the solution that will take your business to the next level, up into the stratosphere. Now, you're probably already doing great. You wouldn't be listening to this otherwise. With Flywheel Nation, you'll have the opportunity to jump on board very early on any game-changing connections or insights that develop. Our vibrant community offers exclusive resources and the collective wisdom of high-impact achievers, ensuring that you experience accelerated growth, breakthrough insights, and powerful connections that will elevate your business. Act now to secure your spot and transform your journey. Join us at innovabiz.co forward slash flywheel. Aaron provides insights into the importance of having multiple relationships with customers and avoiding dependency on a single person. He also shares his perspectives on productivity, developing expertise, and the role of sleep in intelligence. We also discussed understanding how emotional connections to physical objects are formed and how these insights can be used by businesses to create emotional connections with their customers. Finally, Aaron discusses the evolution of love and its application to products and brands, emphasizing the importance of measuring brand love and engineering it consciously. For an illuminating conversation on the psychology of consumer relationships and brand love, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Dr. Aaron Ahuvia. Hi, 
I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited today to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast all the way from Ann Arbor in Michigan, the USA, Dr. Aaron Ahuvia, who's a marketing professor at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, and the world's most cited expert on brand love. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, Aaron. It's a great privilege to have you here as my guest. And Jürgen, it's a great privilege to be on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity. Wonderful. Now, your recent book, The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are, sounds a, a really fascinating title. It explains what brand love is, that we why you're the expert in it, of course, and what causes it while putting brand love in the context of other things we love, such as activities, places, and anything else that isn't the person, although there is an aspect in there that relates to how we connect our love of things to our love of some of our loved ones, if you like, people. So before we start talking about all those things and digging into that, because I'm really fascinated by this topic and looking forward to chatting with you on that, before we do that, what's the impact you're making in the world today, Aaron? Oh, I've been uh, doing a lot of speaking engagements and also working with companies on uh, how they can really generate love for their brands and also how to measure love for your brand because you want to you track what you're trying to achieve and, and that's an important part of it as well. Hmm, fascinating. Well, that's, that's certainly different to um, how we treat our love for people, right? We don't necessarily measure that, although although there is the I love you more kind of aspect to it, isn't there? Yeah. Well, it, 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 is, it is quite different. Um, when you love a brand or a product, your love evolved actually in animals. One of the things that many people find interesting is that humans aren't the only species that have love. Um, in animals, we call it bonding. But it's basically the same thing at a neurological level. Uh, and, you know, love evolved in animals for the purpose of motivating parents to take care of their children, motivating parents to take care of each other, motivating friends to work together uh, in, in, in effective teamwork. So love has all these functions, but they're really just between people. Um, it's much more of a natural fit because that's what it evolved for. Mm. However, when we were evolving as humans, we didn't have a lot of things. We didn't live in a consumer culture like we are in now. So now that we're confronted with this consumer culture, uh, our brain is kind of scrambling. You know, how is it supposed to deal with mm. all of this stuff out there that it didn't used to be there? And so it takes mechanisms like love, or interestingly, like hunger is another one. Uh, it takes these ancient mechanisms and kind of applies them to the things we have around us. So it's a little bit more of a force fit. People do love things. It's not quite natural and obvious mm. and easy the way it is with loving people. Um, that creates a challenge for managers who want consumers to love their products and brands. And that's why we need something like measuring you got to measure the love for a product or a brand because you've got to engineer it in a much more conscious way, whereas you don't need to measure the love for your family because, you know, it just happens. It kind of flows naturally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, why, why do you think that people become, because you referred to the neurological science and evolution reasons why love evolved in animals and humans why, why do you think we become emotionally attached to things to physical objects it's not natural and easy for your brain your brain actually has a series of mechanisms probably more than one on a non-conscious level these are completely unconscious mechanisms and their job is in a sense to prevent you from loving objects. Uh, every time, well, let me just interject here, like why would you have these? Like why would your brain want to prevent you from loving objects? That seems sort of a, an odd thing, but it's not. Um, when you love something, you, you want to hang on to it. 
and you want to keep it, you want to protect mm-hmm. it, you want to do a lot of things for it. Uh, that doesn't, from an evolutionary standpoint, make a lot of sense for objects. It makes total sense for your children. You want to keep your children and protect them and hang on to them and you know, do a lot of nice things for them. But it doesn't make a lot of sense that you'd want to do that for you know some rock or, or, or what have you. Yeah. And in fact, there are situations where people have neurological problems. And the neurological problem is that these mechanisms that are in each of our brains that prevent us from having emotional attachments to a lot of objects, in some people, those mechanisms function very poorly and don't do their job. And these people get emotional attachments to objects extremely easily. Hmm. Now, we call these people hoarders. That's what a hoarder is. A hoarder is someone who has this neurological problem. They keep getting these emotional attachments to objects. They can't get rid of them. And you can see like how bad this is. So to prevent us all from being hoarders, we have evolved these mechanisms that say, you know, if it's an object, value it in a pragmatic way, but don't get emotionally attached to it. However, we all do get emotionally attached to objects. So, like, how is this happening? Well, what's happening is that these mechanisms that normally prevent that are not functioning in some situations. Something is happening in your brain that sort of gets past those mechanisms. And there's three main ways that this happens, three main ways that we end up developing these emotional connections to things um, by circumventing these sort of defense mechanisms in your brain that are there to keep you from loving things. Uh, and so each of those involves people in some way because one of the ways these mechanisms work is they classify something, again, completely unconsciously. They classify it as either a person or not a person. And if it's a person, it says, okay, well, this is, you're not necessarily going to love this, but you might love it, right? It's eligible for love. Mm. If it's not a person, it gets put in the not a person pile. And you're not really supposed to, it's not really eligible for love psychologically in the same way. So every time that you love a brand or love a product, it's a little bit of a case of mistaken identity. What I mean by that is at a non-conscious level, this sorting mechanism in your brain is sorting these things into the person category instead of the object category. And that's a trick that a lot of people in business have no clue about. They're not even aware that this is an issue. Not only are they not solving this problem, they don't even know this problem exists. They think that if they just get the evaluation higher, you know, that people will create an emotional attachment to their brand. Hmm. But that's not true. I, there's, there's emotion, there's, there's evaluations that I have that are very high. My quality evaluation for a Mercedes car is very high. I believe they are extremely well-made, excellent cars. I have zero emotional attachment yeah. to Mercedes. I've never owned one. I would Anyone who wants to give me a Mercedes, we can talk about that. But, um, <laughs> you know, so far, uh, I'm more of an Audi guy, and I have never, I've never owned a Mercedes. I've got no emotional connection there. Um, I'll tell you a, another example of this. I'm right now working on a project for the nation of Vietnam, working with them on tourism and branding the country um, for purposes of tourism. And I was talking to a friend of mine who visited Vietnam uh, a couple of years ago as a tourist. I was very interested. And she said, oh, it was wonderful. It was a, such a beautiful country. The food was delicious. It was great. I think next year I'm going to go to Thailand. <laughs> and that's that's the fear. That's that's the problem. I mean, her evaluation huh. of that vacation in terms of like the quality of her experience was as high as it could get. But there was no emotional connection. There was hmm. nothing that made her say, yeah, and next year I want to go back to Vietnam again because they hadn't created that emotional connection. And that's what a lot of companies miss is that, yes, the quality is absolutely essential, 100% on board the quality train, it's absolutely essential, but you need the quality plus the emotional connection in order to create all the things that you really want 
which are a brand loyalty, repeat purchase, but not just that. Um, people who are really involved with the brand, who feel committed to the brand, people who will say good things to their friends about the brand, people who, if they, you know, if they're on the internet and they see someone write something bad about the brand, will leap to its defense, right? All of those kinds of behaviors don't come from a quality evaluation. They come from love. Yeah, yeah. That's a really important points there. The, um, the thing I'm curious about, I mean, if I think about some of the material things that I might be inclined to say, I love that. I love my bike. I love my cameras. They're things that bring me joy. Mm -hmm. So in a way... That's one. That's probably the connection. It's not that the physical. Th I love the physical thing simply because it's there or it's a physical thing. It's because I know that using that brings me joy, and it brings me joy in a way that it might be um, so much better than than a cheaper version of that or or a less convenient version of that or whatever it may be. The other side of the things where and, and I recently had this experience where we were decluttering our um, display cabinet in the lounge room and my wife said, oh, we can throw away this sherry set. Now, we don't drink sherry um, and this sherry set is kind of a little ornate. It's not a style that actually fits our character or that, that we would be inclined to buy. And so her natural inclination was, well, this can, we can throw this away along with all the other things that have gotten sorted out. And I said, no, that stays because it was a 21st birthday gift from a lifelong friend of mine. Um, so I had a connection to a person that it reminded me of, and I value that relationship. So it's not the thing that I'm actually attached to. It's simply what it represents. So I'm curious, um, how do you see those kind of things? Are, are they typical for how people build emotional attachments to articles and how can businesses actually take advantage of that if they are typical? They are completely typical. If you look in the book, they're both big themes in the book. Um, and let me take them, there, there's so much to say here. Uh, <laughs> let me take them each one at a time and try to go through it a little bit and unpack it for your listeners a little bit here. So the first one is about things that bring you joy. And that is an essential component of anything that people love. If you uh, think of something like life insurance um, or other types of insurance, uh, even if people think the quality of their life insurance is very, very high, I, when I, I've done many interviews where I talk to people and say, just you know, tell me about something that you love. And it could be an object, it could be an activity, anything. Just tell me about what it is. Nobody's ever brought up insurance. <laughs> no, at all. It just doesn't, doesn't happen. Um, in order to love something, there has to, in addition to the quality, there has to be a, a positive experience that's part of it. And it's that experience that makes you say you love that thing. Um, and I'll give you an example that I think clarifies this a lot. So it, Two, I interviewed two different women. Both of them talked about their athletic shoes. One of them said she loved her athletic shoes. The other one said she thought they were great athletic shoes but didn't really love them. What was the difference? The woman who loved her athletic shoes enjoyed the process of exercise. So while she was wearing them, she was having a good experience. And so she said, I love my life products shoes. They're, they're connected with this positive emotion, positive experience. The other woman who said, I, they're good, but I don't love them, she said, you know, I don't like exercising. I don't like what I'm doing when I'm wearing them. What I do like is I like the fact that it makes me look good afterwards. So what I love is I love being in shape. I love looking good and being healthy, and I love being in shape. But I don't love exercising. Yeah. That's a means to an end. And what we say with people all the time is this cliche. Does the person love the other person or are they just using them? Hmm. If the product gives you even, it doesn't have to be a, a barrel of monkeys all the time, but if it gives you positive experiences, 
then people say, I love this product. If the product is just a tool, then it's like you're just using it as a tool. You don't love it, you're just using it. And so part of the thing that people need to do, managers need to do, if they want people to love their brand, is they've got to get the quality right, and then they have to have it give some kind of a, a positive experience. They have to look at the user experience. So that's one point. Now let's move on to the second point, which is about how the Sherry set connected you to the to your friend. Uh, I'm going to quote a great consumer researcher Russell Belk who also has done research in this area and he says that when you start out talking to someone about a sherry set or something else that means a lot to them at the beginning of the conversation it always seems like it's a person thing relationship so it's a relationship between you and this sherry set however when you talk to them in more detail it always turns out to be person thing person so mm. you're the person the sherry set is the thing and then your friend who gave it to you as a gift is the other person so it's this person thing person relationship it acts as a way of connecting you to another person and this is super common with the brands and the products we love and if you'll recall a couple of minutes ago i was talking about the sorting mechanism in your brain that says love is for people, what's happening here is that your brain, again, unconsciously, has taken the sherry set and your friend and it's bound them up into a single unit. Hmm. And so when you look at the sherry set, you see it as sort of part of this combined unit with your friend. It's part of your friend. And as a result, your brain gives it this emotional connection, it treats it as if it is a person because it's seeing it as part of this person who you have this relationship with. Hmm. Uh, and so that's how that's what gives it the emotional impact. So for brands or products, one of the things they need to do is they need to get their brand to be associated with the person that the consumer has a positive feeling about. A lot of brands do this. Um, I've done interviews recently with people who own Ferraris and are, you know, Ferrari owners. Now you've got to be a pretty big fan of Ferrari to <laughs> lay down that amount of money uh, on a car. Every one of them that I've interviewed, it's fascinating to me. They really admire Enzo Ferrari, the founder of the company, and they will talk about him and they know stories about him and they really admire his joie de vivre and a lot of things about him and part of the reason they love ferrari is that, that, that ferrari has a human aspect and their brain is creating this emotional connection and it's doing that because it is connected to this person enzo ferrari so that person it could be a spokesperson for the brand it could be a founder of the company it could be uh animated avatar for the brand. Uh, it doesn't have to be the founder. It could be a salesperson. People ask me all the time in business-to-business -business brands, they'll say, is brand love relevant for a business-to-business -business brand? And sometimes it's more relevant than other times. It depends on the brand. We can talk about that too. But what business-to-business -business brands have known forever is that a lot to the extent that any consumer any business is really loyal to a supplier that they buy from that loyalty isn't really about the supplier it's about the human beings hmm. they know the connections yeah work at the supplier's company hmm. they've got a relationship with the salesperson or the support team or the manager or whoever it is and it's that human relationship that's providing the loyalty and in that way, that human relationship is the essence of brand love. And in that way, brand love is relevant to a lot of business-to-business -business brands. Mm, yeah, I think that's that's worth the price of entry today alone, what you just said there. It's a gold. It's a, that key thing. And I think it gets lost a lot, particularly in, in the B2B sense, that um, people forget that it's not B2B, actually. It's H2H. 
human yeah. to human. That's right. And uh, I may take you on that. <laughs> particularly <laughs> today with um, with the economic situation we're in and the turnover of staff that's happening or the cutbacks that are happening, people are kind of forgetting that, yes, we can do without uh, Joe in, in sales because we've got so many salespeople, but then Joe has is is the person that has the best relationship with a couple of our key customers they forget that part right. of it and and if joe's gone that you have to figure out a way how can you quickly rebuild that relationship and sometimes it actually damages the relationship knowing that this company doesn't value joe as much as some of the other sales people absolutely and it's it's a it's a it's a plus and a minus. I mean, if you're the company that has the salespeople, you want to be aware of this, and you, you don't want the whole company's relationship hanging yeah. by a single salesperson. Because yeah. what if that person takes another job, or mm. you know something happens? It, it, that's not a good thing. So you want to have a network of relationships that that go beyond uh, just one single person uh, to avoid that kind of de- dependency. But it is that you can't avoid having the loyalty in the relationships. I know companies that take this way too far. They're like, we don't want to be, you know, we don't want Joe, the sales guy, to hold us up for ransom, right? Mm-hmm. He's got this good relationship with the company. So instead, we're going to automate everything <laughs> and we're going to get rid of these relationships. And I'm like, no, that's, that, yeah, that's throwing out the baby with the bathwater, yeah. right? What you want to do is you want to get more people so it's mm. not only joe who has the relationship um, but you don't want to get rid you can't get rid of the relationships because then you don't have anything yeah yeah that's absolutely crucial and uh, i know in my days in the corporate world when when the companies i worked for were doing this well the salesperson would be the point person who would have key relationship with some people at the uh, customer but he would call in all the way up to the CEO of the company. He would call in different people at different levels to meet with their counterparts at the customer company so that the relationships were right right across the board. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, you alluded earlier that um, this idea of brand love and, and setting out to build brand love for a brand or for a business or for a product isn't necessarily suitable for all companies. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Is, is there, um, are there examples where it is suitable and people should be taking on board some of these ideas and are there relationships, uh, are there situations where people... Um, probably don't need to focus as much on this idea of brand love. Yeah, I mean, I'm unusual in the consulting speaking arena because most people, if they've got a hammer, they think everything is in it. And, you know, their idea is the right idea for everyone at all times. And and that is really not true. Uh, there Now, there are certain things, even if you're not really going to have a brand love strategy, there are smart things you can do. You know, if you're, a, say, again, a B2B brand and you decide we're not going to focus on brand love, it's still smart to have your salespeople form yeah. good relationships <laughs> with the other company. Yeah. So there are certain techniques that you, you, you would want to apply. Uh, but there is the sort of core fact that at an unconscious level, the human brain does have this sorting mechanism that says, you know, love is for people, we're going to have a more pragmatic relationship with objects, and if you want to get past that, it's expensive and labor-intensive. You have to do a lot. Now, Brent, you can do it, but it, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, Apple is a great company, a great example hmm. of a company. They take brand love very, very seriously. And they measure it and they talk about it. And Apple is the most loved brand in the world, not by accident. I mean, they have very consciously and overtly targeted brand love. And it's fascinating to me to see how I'll discover something in my scientific research and then turn around and 
discovered that two years ago Apple started doing it, or two years later Apple will start doing it, or one or the other, right? But they're right there, you know, uh, doing all the same stuff. And I've worked with Samsung on their global brand strategy, helping them figure out, okay, how do we build more of an emotional connection? And so there's a lot of brands where this works. However, because the brain has this sorting mechanism, there's going to be times when it's just not a good, it's not worth the investment. It's not a good strategy hmm. for a company to be sort of trying to circumvent this. The company will should perhaps say, you know what, people are going to see our products just as products. They're not going to, they're not going to form these emotional attachments to them. Um, at least not deep ones. They may have sort of superficial emotional attachments, but not really deep emotional attachments to our products. And we're going to use a different strategy. And this other strategy, uh, I sometimes call it um, useful, pleasant, and easy. Because that's what people want from an object. They want an object to be extremely useful. They want the experience to be pleasant. They don't want frustration. They don't want pain. They don't want like a bad experience. So the experience doesn't have to be like exhilarating, but it should be pleasant. Hmm. And they want the whole thing to be easy um, all the way through. And so you make sure that the, you pay a lot of attention to consumer experience. You make sure that your product is useful, pleasant, and easy. And then the other part of the strategy is kind of a push strategy where you focus a lot on channels of distribution. So you make sure the product is available everywhere. So every time the consumer turns around, they're looking at that product. And you have a lot of reminder advertising going on. So the product stays top of mind. And with this being very convenient to access, top of mind for the consumer, they're not really that involved. So they think, well, what kind of tuna fish do I want? Oh, yeah, that's a good tuna fish. And they grab your tuna fish and they put it in their shopping cart and they move on. That can work very well for a lot of companies. Um, if you look at a company like uh, in, in the United States, uh, Walmart. Walmart's a good example of this. Uh, Walmart is super useful. It has like all the products you want at a low price, and for a lot of people who are budget constrained, that's really important. And for other people who just like the deal, that's really important. Hmm. So it's super useful. Um, it could be a little more pleasant. It could be a little bit more easy, but there's a Walmart near you, so it's got the convenience thing. It does a fair amount of advertising to keep things top of mind, and they're a very profitable company, and not a lot of people love Walmart, yeah. but a lot of people shop at Walmart because you know it's useful and top of mind. So there is this other strategy. One of the talks that I give is called uh, Is Brand Love Bullshit? And it really refers to this debate in a lot of companies because you have, they don't know the vocabulary I, I use, but I'll bet to some of the listeners right now, you can find in your company the people who are like the useful, pleasant, easy people. They're like, customers don't want to love our brand. Customers hmm. don't think about our brand that way. Let's, let's be pragmatic. Let's be practical about yeah. this. So there's those people. And then there's the other people in the company who are like, no, customers could love our brand, right? We could be the next Apple. And, and those are sort of the brand love people. And one of the things that I do for companies sometimes is I help them reasonably sort through this and look at what are the pros and cons of each of these positions. Because it's not a priori obvious that one of them is necessarily going to be right and the other one's going to be wrong. It depends. It's kind of a complicated decision. It depends on the specific company and what their circumstances are. Hmm. Yeah, and there, there's probably um, a lot to learn from either approach and, and meld yeah. into a unique approach that suits your own particular strategy. So and, and yeah, I think absolutely. you've shared lots of great examples there of what we can learn from that. And I love the UPE. I, I'll borrow that from <laughs> All right. Well, this has been fabulous, Aaron. We could go on talking for ages and we haven't even touched on some of the other aspects like your discussion of um, of materialism and happiness and the link between them. But that's I think that might be for another episode. 
I'd be happy to come back and talk about materialism and happiness. Excellent. I think it's a good point now to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round. It's the same five questions I ask of every guest. And the idea is you'll give the listener something to take away, an idea that they'll turn into action today and do something awesome with. Okay. You ready? Sure. What's the number one thing anyone needs to do to be more innovative? Get a good night's sleep. Absolutely. I, you mentioned my research on materialism and happiness. I have two main strands of research, one on brand love and the other is on happiness. And the research on happiness is unequivocal, uh, equivocal, excuse me, that sleep is so undervalued. Um, if you get a good night's sleep every night, uh, you will be smarter. There is no difference between a, a, a good someone an IQ test. There's no difference between a stupid person and a tired person. So <laughs> uh, get a good night's sleep. And it's particularly hard for people, often men, not only, but often men, often of my generation, but again, not only, who are raised with this absolutely unfounded belief that sleep is for wimps. And if you're like a, a strong guy, you know, you don't need that. You can just train your body to live on four hours sleep. And all you're doing if you try and do that to yourself is making yourself distracted and, and frankly, making yourself a little stupider than you or less smart than you hmm. could otherwise be. And so get a good night's sleep. And unhealthy. And I, there is a whole yeah. another episode on, on that whole answer because I've um, recently... Uh, really focused on my sleep and and I did it because I spoke to some sleep people on the podcast and I thought yes they make lots of good points they were talking essentially along the lines of what you've just shared uh, but what I've found is I've started losing weight I've started being much more alert I have since I've gotten my sleep patterns in order I haven't needed any daytime naps uh, I've been exercising much more robustly. Uh, I just feel better all around. It, it's amazing the difference it makes. So, yeah. I really believe that if you're in a developed economy where, you know, starvation is not at the doorstep for people, for most people, fortunately, if we could do one change that would increase the happiness of the population, Frankly, you just get people to go to bed on time. <laughs> that would be like the single biggest thing you could do to improve people's happiness. Excellent. All right. What's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? So the origin of new ideas, I'm one of those people, for better or worse, that has no problem with that. Um, I don't need to like have a technique to think of new ideas. Mm. They, they come very, very easily to me. However, there's the whole developing them. Mm. Now, that's... That's the challenge, right? You have a, a lot of ideas, but how do you really curate them, figure out the right ones, and turn them into something that's really useful? Um, I've learned that you need to just talk to a lot of other people uh, about them, do a lot of networking, and get other people's opinions and perspectives. And one of the things that stops some people from doing this is they have an excessive fear that other people will steal their ideas. Hmm. My experience is, I mean, I'm sure it's happened in the history of mankind sometime that someone's stolen somebody else's idea. I've never seen it happen. I see all the time people who could benefit from sharing their ideas. I've never seen a case. And what you find is that you've got this idea. You're so worried. It's so beautiful. It's so brilliant. Someone's going to steal my brilliant idea. And then you share it with other people. Not only do they not steal the brilliant idea, they often don't think it's that brilliant of an idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you, you find a lot of ways to improve your idea. Hmm. So it's, it's really a little bit of ego, a little bit of, uh, of excessive arrogance and vanity uh, if you think that everyone else is out to steal your idea. Yeah, yeah, that's a really valuable point. That, um, there's, there's a lot of examples like that where we worry so much about something and it turns out that nobody else gives a damn about it <laughs> yeah. or nobody else thinks it's such a great idea. All right. Do you have a favorite resource you use a lot? 
favorite resource that I use a lot. Um, no, uh, nothing really springs to mind. I have a now. If you want to know about just sort of improving productivity or a tool for improving to, uh, productivity, I would say that the single biggest tool that I have learned, and I do not use it often enough, the single biggest tool is the ability to say no. Um, I tend to be, and I think a lot of people are, a little bit too opportunistic in that any like possibility that comes along, you want to pursue that possibility. Uh, one of the things that I've learned over the years that I think is a true piece of wisdom, strategy is defined by what you say no to. Mm -hmm. So if you're not saying no to things, you don't have a strategy. Yeah. You're just running around at any available opportunity. The key to productivity, it's very hard to do the same thing you know, really well, a whole lot faster. That's very unusual. The way to be more productive most of the time is to figure out what you should be doing and what you shouldn't. So you can devote your time to the right things. Hmm. And that means being able to say no to the wrong things. Yeah, yeah, and setting boundaries. That's a, that's a really, um, really insightful point there and um, great, great tool um, to, to, and skill to develop. All right, now what's the best way to keep a client on track? Incremental deadlines. If it were not for deadlines, I would get nothing done. So more small deadlines that are attached to some form of accountability so people take them seriously uh, is the way I find to keep things on schedule. Okay, so incremental deadlines, is that you mean here's, here's the goal that, We've set ourselves, but here's what we have to do this week. Here's what we have to do this week, and we're going to have some accountability. Here's how we know we got that done, and we're going to have some accountability around it. Hmm. Um, because people will put off till the last minute hmm. getting things done. And so if you make the last minute happen every week along the way, yeah. people will get things done every week along the way. <laughs> if you let the last minute build up to be every three months, they'll get to work every three months. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, that's another human trait that we can talk ages about. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. And finally, in the buzz around, what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? Pick something that you want to be considered good at. Um, it's amazing how... Like, this didn't even occur to me for a long time, the early part of my career. Um, I didn't really get this. I talked to other academics. It's super important for us to actually consciously decide, I'm going to be the expert at such and such. Uh, and most people have never even thought about that. So I work with a lot of junior academics. It's, yeah, just talking to them through, like, what's it going to be for you? Like, what are you going to pick to actually make up your mind? And, okay, you want to differentiate yourself. Differentiate yourself how? Right? What's, what's it going to be that people think of like you are associated with this? You're the expert in this. So pick something and then just stick with it. Hmm. Um, I, I did the first real substantive work, scientific research on brand love uh, in the world. I, nobody was looking at the topic. I was the first person to really start looking at this topic. That was about 30 years ago. Uh, I developed some reputation around it, but that reputation sort of started to fade after a number of years. And then I did a huge second sort of renaissance of work uh, about 2010, 2012, which I've continued to this day now. And it's really the fact that I did the early work, but then also did like the major theoretical reconceptualization of the work a little bit later. It's that consistency across time that has contributed to the, rec you know, sort of the reputation and so now, at least in scientific or academic circles, if somebody says brand love, people go like, oh, yeah, that's the Aaron Ahubias thing, right? Mm. But the reason I, I have that reputation is simply that I kept at it. I did not stop. Mm. And that's, I find, could be true for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. It comes back a little bit to what you were saying earlier about Learning to say no as well. Um, learning yeah. to focus on the on on the thing that you love and you're good at 
and and continuing to develop your skills in that and being consistent around uh, put, putting out content creation yeah. information. All right, wonderful. Thanks for getting us through the buzz round. This has been absolutely fabulous. The whole conversation has been absolutely fabulous. Now, where can people find out more about you, the work you do, um, and get a hold of the book, of course, and also maybe get in touch and say thanks for what you've shared today, Aaron? The book is with a major publisher, Little Brown. It's available everywhere uh, that you can get a book just about. Um, it's called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. If you can remember The Things We Love, you can find me at thethingswelove.com, uh, where you can get my blog and uh, learn more than you ever wanted to know about uh, me and my work. Excellent. Wonderful. Thanks, Aaron. We'll include links, of course, to the to those in the show notes. Finally, what action would you like our listener to take out of our conversation today? You know, step one, have that conversation in your business. Is brand love bullshit? Is this, you know, what strategy do we want to use? Are we going to be the useful, pleasant, easy people who focus on distribution, top of mind advertising, quality products, and keep everything practical, but you know, applied in a, in a practical, strong way? Or are we going to have a strategy that says we're going to develop a real emotional connection? Consumers are going to have a real emotional connection with our brand. It's not just that they're going to think it's good, they're going to think it's good and that it's part of their identity and that it's really important to them. If you're going to do that, You've got to do more than just have a quality product. You've got to look at how you're going to create those emotional connections. And that is a complicated and fascinating and super fun business. Hmm. Excellent. Well, that's a great call to action. Have that conversation. Begin to really consciously think about that. And then, yeah, if you decide to go down the brand love path, get a hold of Aaron's book as a first step and read it. All right. Well, thanks so much for sharing your insights and your knowledge and, and tips today so generously with us, Aaron. I've really enjoyed the conversation today and um, uncovered a couple of other areas where we could probably have separate episodes again. So we'll, um, we'll circle back on that. Um, all the best for the future and please do stay in touch. Yeah, Jürgen, this was really an enjoyable conversation. Thanks for the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that fascinating and really insightful conversation with Aaron and most importantly took something away from his episode. Think about this idea of brand love. Have that conversation within your business. Are you the useful, pleasant, easy people who focus on distribution, top of mind, advertising, quality products and keeping everything practical? Or are you pursuing a strategy that says we'll develop a real emotional connection between consumers and our brand? Now, by the way, either one is fine. Just be clear on what your strategy is. And if you're going for the real deep emotional connection between consumers and your brand, then it's beyond them thinking that your brand is good. They'll think it's good and it's part of their identity and that it's really important to them. They've got to have it. Now, if you plan the brand love strategy, you're going to need more than just a quality product. You're going to have to create those emotional connections. And as Aaron says, that's going to be both complicated and fascinating, but super fun. Aaron's episode can be found at innovabiz.co forward slash Aaron Ahuvia. That is A-A-R-O-N-A-H-U-V-I-A. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Aaron Ahuvia. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Aaron, as well as links to his websites, the book, The Things We Love, his social media pages, and the other resources we spoke about in our conversation. Now, I'm really grateful that you're still with us. 
And I hope you found this conversation captivating. If you did, then spread the joy by sharing it with one other person who might also find it engaging. You'll be doing them a favour. And remember to secure your episode bookmark token at innovabiz.co forward slash bookmarks. For what you'd spend on a cup of coffee, you can hold a lasting memento, a lasting recording of this episode and have it at your fingertips at any time. Purchasing the token ensures that we can provide 50% of the profit directly to Aaron as the episode's guest, while the rest helps maintain the podcast. It is a really meaningful way to express your appreciation to Aaron and to show support for his episode. Aaron suggested that we have a conversation with Philip Rauschnabel, expert using augmented reality, virtual reality and the metaverse in marketing, and Brittany Hodak, author of Creating Superfans on future InnovaBuzz podcast episodes. So Philip and Brittany, keep an eye on your inboxes for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast, courtesy of Dr. Aaron Ahuvia. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to leave a review on this episode. It will help us to make the podcast better for you. Simply go to lovethepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz and pick your preferred platform. Remember to visit innovabiz.co forward slash Flywheel and secure your membership to the exclusive Flywheel Nation community where you'll enjoy direct access to our incredible podcast guests, engaging meaningful conversations and participate in connection events designed to elevate your business journey. Don't miss out. Join Flywheel Nation today. Tune in again to the next episodes of the Innova Buzz podcast where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from Innova Biz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.